Good morning, church. Wonderful to see you all this morning and uh, excited to continue our study in the book of Romans, uh, particularly so we can uh, deal with uh, this issue of our sin that uh, continues to plague us for these first three chapters of Romans. And uh, next week we will be talking more about the glory of the gospel and uh, all its wonderful, wonderful uh, blessings that it bestows. Uh, We have one more week where uh, Paul is going to talk about sin uh, just over and over again in these uh, verses. So uh, we need to talk about sin. And so that's what we'll do today. And uh, our our message is coming from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, in a message that I'm calling, And Judgment for All. Uh, So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Lord God, uh, these first three chapters of Romans are difficult for us to hear because uh, they just keep reminding us of our sin and that there is no escape from your judgment uh, except through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful for that, Lord, uh, for the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, And Lord, I pray that uh, as we uh, preach through this message today and, and talk about the sin of all the world, that we would be convicted of it, Lord, and just see how beautiful the gospel is in light of it. Lord, we want to lift up the Welch family and the Deakey family, uh, the, the pain that they're going through right now, uh, the loss that they're feeling, and uh, for a man at such a young age uh, to die of cancer is, is difficult, Lord, and I pray that their faith would be strengthened, that they would be comforted, Lord, that your presence would be with them. And Lord, we'd lift up Diana as well as uh, she is battling uh, cancer as well, and Lord, it's, it's not an easy road that she's walking, and, and Lord, we just lift her up to you. We pray for her comfort and her peace, uh, Lord, and for David and Aaron. We just lift them to you, Lord. Uh, please be their presence in these days, Lord. We thank you for what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you look up at the night sky around Dallas, you're certainly not going to see too many stars, right? Because you're going to see just a lot of light and uh, the quality of the air is not so great and the lights drown out the stars. It's just difficult to see a whole lot of stars in Dallas because the city prevents us uh, from seeing anything. Uh, To see the brilliance of the night sky, you need to go out, like out into the country, uh, away from the the city fog and, and the lights and everything. We were out in uh, Glen Rose a few weeks ago, and man, what a difference to be out there as uh, opposed to, to uh, Dallas. Uh, you can look up there and see things that uh, you haven't seen in a long time if you haven't left the city in a while. Uh, the night sky just appears so brilliant and beautiful, uh, the stars against the backdrop of uh, all that darkness. Uh, and the gospel is a lot like that in a lot of ways because uh, what we need to see is the brilliance of the gospel, but we can't really see it in all its glory until we understand uh, the blackness of our sin. Uh, it's against the blackness of our sin that we see the brightness and the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel. Uh, if we don't have that, then all we will see is the gospel very dimly. We won't have a full-orbed view of it. And so that's what Paul was doing in these first few verses of Romans, you know, he wanted to preach the gospel. And I can imagine him with his pen, uh, his quill, as he's writing these first several chapters, uh, just dying to get to the gospel. But he can't really get to the gospel until he exposes the need for the gospel. He's got to expose uh, our need for a savior. 
Uh, and without us understanding uh, fully the measure of our sin and the penalty that it deserves, uh, we won't really appreciate the gospel. We won't appreciate the holiness of God. We won't appreciate how far short we fall of the glory of God until uh, we have a full exposition about our sin. And so Paul talked about the sin uh, of all people throughout these first three chapters. Uh, that was the night sky that I was supposed to show you earlier. That's the brilliance of the stars against the dark night sky, so I'm out of order. But here's what he was showing these, uh, everybody who's shut up under sin. Uh, these Gentile immoral idolaters in verses 18 to 32 of chapter 1. And then he condemns the self-righteous and pious Jews and Gentiles in the beginning part of chapter 2. And then the Jews who relied on the law and circumcision uh, at the second part of chapter 2. And as we come uh, to chapter 3, now in the first eight verses, he's going to uh, anticipate some Jewish objections that, that he thinks are going to come, and he's going to answer those objections. And then uh, once he's done with that, he's going to talk about the sin of all mankind in case anybody missed it and thought that they might escape uh, God's judgment somehow. Uh, no one is safe from God's wrath. All are under sin. And so uh, for us today, if you don't hear anything else that I say today, hear this, and that is that we are among the people who Paul talks about when he says, there is no one who does good. No, there is not even one. We too are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And so uh, this passage is going to expose that in us as much as Paul intended to expose it among his audience that he was talking about. So uh, these Jewish objections, uh, let's remember that Paul, of course, was writing to believers. We've said that several times now, right? A Jewish and Gentile believers. But he knew that unbelievers were going to read this letter. And certainly it was his hope uh, that the believers who received this letter would teach the unbelievers about the gospel and that uh, perhaps they would even use this letter from Paul uh, to teach the unbelievers about the gospel. And so he wants everybody to know, Jew and Gentile alike, uh, that they're under sin. But, but he's talking specifically to the Jewish objectors here. What would the Jews say in response to what Paul was writing? And Paul anticipates what they're going to say, and so he answers uh, them in advance. And so uh, remember, last week he said, the law and circumcision is of no value to you unless you keep the law perfectly. And it's easy to understand that the Jews would have been offended by such a statement because this was who they were. It was their identity. It was what, what marked them out as separate from the Gentiles. And for 2,000 years, since the days of Abraham, they had been marked out as separate from the Gentiles uh, uh, by uh, the following uh, circumcision and then after Moses following the law. And they lived under the assumption that because they had the law and circumcision that they were God's people, safe from God's wrath, uh, nothing to fear uh, because circumcision and the law marked them out as God's chosen people. And so now along comes Paul. And in their eyes, he's this radical, a former Jew who is preaching against law and preaching against circumcision. And they were right to think that in the sense that he was preaching against it in terms of its ability to save, uh, in terms of thinking that they were justified to rely on it for their salvation. He was preaching against it in that way. And that certainly would have offended the Jews because uh, Paul's teaching struck at the very foundation of Judaism because the law and circumcision were its pillars. 
And Paul wanted them to know that the law and circumcision don't save. The law reflects God's character and circumcision reflects God's covenant, but they don't save in and of themselves. And so the Jews were pretty feisty people and Paul knew that they weren't going to hear Paul's charges lying down. They were going to have something to say about what Paul was teaching in response. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's anticipating these objections that are going to come and he's going to answer them in advance. Uh, so the first objection is found in verses 1 and 2. Uh, is there any benefit to being a Jew? Uh, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? And Paul answers, surprisingly, I think, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, we might say, oh, wait a minute. Paul just finished saying, uh, just in the previous verses, that law and circumcision has no advantage to them. And now he's saying uh, the benefit is great in every way. Uh, so what's he saying? Uh, he's saying that, that the law and circumcision are no benefit as to their salvation because they didn't keep the law. In fact, they couldn't keep the law. But that doesn't mean that the law and circumcision have no benefit at all. They actually have great benefit. So Paul says, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, when you hear first of all, you expect there to be a second of all and a third of all, right? And, and, and Paul doesn't do that. Uh, Paul has a tendency to do that and then kind of get sidetracked and not get back to the second of all and third of all. Uh, well, it may be that, that Paul simply meant here, first of all, in terms of first in importance rather than intending to uh, give us a full list of, of what all these advantages are. And he could have meant that. Uh, but it could be that he also got sidetracked for about you know, five chapters or so, six chapters, because uh, once we get to chapter 9, verse 4, Paul's going to list a whole other set of advantages uh, that the Jews have. And they are adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the, pro and the uh, promises. And it's a long list of advantages that they have. But Paul was only talking about this first advantage uh, at this particular time, that they have the oracles of God. Uh, the oracles are the law and the prophets. It's the word of God that he's talking about here. So if the law and circumcision don't save, uh, then how can these, these, law, these oracles, the law and the promises of the prophets, be of great benefit to them. It seems really like more of a burden because Paul continues to say, you're condemned by the law, you're not saved by it. Well, they're a benefit because the law is like a flashlight that shines into the corners of our lives. It shines a light on all the sin that's present there and exposes it. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have that because God wants us to live a different kind of life than the, than the pagans live. He wants us to know the sin that we have. And so it's much better to know God's word and know about our sins so we can repent of it rather than to live in ignorance. And it's better to know how he wants us to live rather than to just live however we want to live. And it's better for us to understand what the law is so that we know how he wants us to live so that we can be a guide to others, so we can lead them spiritually. And that's what Paul wanted his audience to do. And so it's better to be able to be a guide to the blind rather than to be blind ourselves and to continue to walk in ignorance. And so God had, cho had chosen his people. He chose the Jews to have these oracles so they could have these benefits of the law and circumcision and then be a light to others so, so they could lead those people out of darkness and into the light. And so it is a great privilege. 
So it's got this, uh, this component of it that is very beneficial, but it's also got this component of it that's dangerous because if we don't follow the law, if the Jews didn't follow the law, then the law brings judgment. And so as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of uh, like nuclear power, for example. Nuclear power can be a very dangerous thing, right? If we don't use it properly, we're going to melt from radiation and we don't want that. Uh, so we need to use it carefully, but that doesn't mean we ignore its power, not use its power. It can be a great benefit to us if used properly. It creates heat, electricity. It's clean to use. Uh, so it, it's got a lot of great benefits, but we gotta be sure we're using it carefully or else it can be very dangerous. Uh, and so just like the, the Jews were going to rely on the law for salvation, that's the wrong use of the law. That's very dangerous to rely on trying to keep the law for salvation. But if they use the law properly to have it shine a light on their sin uh, so they can correct it, so they can lead others uh, into the walk that God has for them, well, then it's of great benefit because the law brings judgment if we don't obey it. And it's better to have the law than not to have the law and to know God's right will for living. And so that brings uh, the objectors to a second objection. Uh, if the Jews didn't believe, doesn't that nullify God's unfaithfulness? Verses 3 to 4. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. <clears throat> now, again, the Jews are arguing that they can be saved just because they're Jews, and Paul said that being a Jew would not save them alone. Uh, they had the oracles, but they didn't believe them, and that's the problem, because they had the prophecy of the promise of a coming Savior, and they rejected him when he came. And so they are guilty of not following the law, not following the prophets, not believing the promises of God. But the Jews would say, well, wait a minute, if God is going to judge us, doesn't that make him unfaithful to his covenant? And Paul said to that objection, may it never be, which is the strongest way possible uh, that Paul could uh, deny a claim that they would make. Uh, God is not unfaithful if the Jews don't believe. In fact, uh, God's judgment doesn't cancel out his unfaithfulness. His judgment actually affirms his faithfulness because God would be unrighteous if he didn't judge sin. God's faithfulness means that he will judge those who violate his, uh, his laws and, and covenants, and he will bless those who keep them. So God has always demanded repentance and faith for salvation. He never intended that the law would be something that's saved. And so I'll show you two Old Testament passages that they would have been very familiar with uh, that would teach them that it's by faith and repentance that we're saved, not by keeping the law. So Isaiah chapter 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So we see that it's repentance, faith in the Lord, turning to the Lord uh, that brings his pardon, not adherence to a code. And then uh, after David's sin with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you 
are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So if the Jews were questioning whether God is right to judge, they could look right back to Psalm 51 and see that God is blameless when he judges. God is true and he is righteous no matter what people do. If every single man is a liar, and we are, a God still is faithful that does not undo or undermine his righteousness or affect it in any way. God is righteous in spite of our sinfulness. And all we have to do to understand that that is true is to look at the cross because the most righteous person, the perfectly righteous person, went to the cross to die for our sins there. And God proves his faithfulness that way. It's not the law and circumcision that saves. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. He proves his faithfulness in his, and his own righteous character by punishing sin and by providing a Messiah for all who will believe and repent of their sin. And so because God is faithful, he has the right to judge. But that doesn't mean that God has broken his covenant with Israel. In fact, uh, Paul is going to talk for three chapters in chapters 9 to 11 about uh, the covenant that he has made with Israel So God has not forsaken Israel, but he will judge sinful Israel. And Paul's reference to God then as judge leads to yet a third objection, asking the question, is God unjust to judge? Verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise... How will he judge the world? And so the objection here is is one of comparison, I would say. Uh, uh, Aren't we doing God a favor by our sinning? Uh, Because by comparison, it makes God look even more righteous. And again, uh, if so, if that's true, if if God is uh, made to look more righteous because of our sin, why should he judge us for that? Uh, Wouldn't that be unfair uh, if we actually glorify God by our sin? And Paul apparently thinks that this objection is so silly that he has to say, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm making a silly human argument. And again, he says, in the strongest terms possible, may it never be uh, that such a thing could be true. And then he asks a question of his own. Uh, If God is unjust in judging, well, then how can he judge the world? And of course, they understand that God will judge the world. Uh, If their objection was legitimate, then God would have no right to judge the world. And they certainly would be familiar with Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so it was a given that God would judge the world. God has to judge the world. Who else could judge the world? God has to be its judge. And that led to a fourth objection, which is actually rather similar to the fourth objection. And it goes like uh, to the third objection, but it goes like this. If sin increases grace, why not continue sinning? Verses 7 to 8, But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still also being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? And Paul's answer is that their condemnation is just. So the objection is similar. Uh, If our sin shows how great the grace of God is, shouldn't we sin all the more to show how great uh, God's grace is? If he has to forgive even greater sin, then doesn't that increase his stature? Uh, And so some people had distorted Paul's teaching to say that this is what he was teaching, that we ought to ignore the law completely and just do whatever we want to do, continue to go on sinning so that grace may abound. 
And Paul is going to address that very objection in great detail in chapter 6, but for now, uh, he barely justifies it with a response. His only answer is that their condemnation is just. And so uh, he moves on uh, basically arguing that the ends never justifies the means. Uh, God doesn't need us to increase our sin to give God greater glory. Uh, this objection shows a complete lack of understanding of what it means to be in Christ, to, to know Jesus Christ as Savior, because uh, once we get to the point that we know Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, our sin should really bother us. It should never be something that we would argue is a good thing. A, a Christian would never say, let our sin increase so that grace might increase as well. Uh, God gets more glory from people repenting of sin rather than increasing their sin. And so if sin ultimately shows uh, God's greater grace, even though it does, uh, st sin still is never good. Even if God chooses to make something beautiful out of our sin, sin is still nothing we should uh, continue to engage in. Now, before we move on, I just want us to be reminded that Paul was a Jew, and Paul loved the Jewish people. In chapter 9, he wrote to them, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. You can feel the love in Paul's words. He was willing to trade his own status as a saved, a redeemed sinner uh, if he could uh, bring his kinsmen to the Lord. Uh, and so he wasn't being mean to them in these verses, even though he sounds like he's very harsh. He was trying to show them in the very strongest language possible uh, the, the situation, the, the predicament that they were in. Uh, they were not safe from the wrath of God. They were going to experience it unless they repented and learned to follow Jesus. So Paul has answered their objections, and he's convicted the pagan Gentiles, the self-righteous and pious Jews and Gentiles, the Jews who relied on the law and circumcision. Uh, he's done all this convicting, and now, just in case there was anyone out there who still thought that somehow they could slip through the net of God's judgment, just in case, Paul is going to wrap it up in these last 11 verses, uh, being sure that he is, uh, has communicated clearly that everyone, everyone is convicted of their sin, the entire human race. And he does it generally in verse 9, and then specifically uh, from uh, citations from the Old Testament in verses 10 to 18, and then finally in verses 19 and 20, he finishes with this final word of warning against the Jews. And so we'll be talking here about God's judgment of mankind. And we see in verse 9 that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. What then, Paul says, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So Paul has argued already that there is no favoritism with God. Everyone is going to suffer God's judgment based on the revelation that they have. The Gentiles were condemned because they didn't obey the law of nature that was made available to them. They could see it in nature. They could see it in conscience. The Jews were convicted and they were under the law because they didn't obey the revelation that God had given them in the written law. 
And the advantage to being a Jew is to have access to this spe special revelation, but it's of no benefit to salvation if they weren't able to keep the law. And so since they didn't and couldn't keep the law, they were no better off than the Gentiles in avoiding God's judgment. He would judge the Jews by the same righteous standard that he would use to judge the Gentiles, uh, but even more seriously because the Jews had greater revelation than the Gentiles. And so God will condemn the Jews and Gentiles equally because they are all under sin. And it's not just that they sinned, it's that sin controlled them, dominated them, uh, imprisoned them, just as it does us. No one can escape sin's power by their own efforts, including us. And that's the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, it doesn't mean that we are as bad as we can possibly be. We can always sin more. But it means that we are as bad off as we possibly can be because there is no part of us that is not tainted, marred, or, or marked by sin in some way. Uh, there is no part of us that is not affected. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians, he said, we are dead in our sin. And that's what it means to be totally depraved. And that's the human predicament. We can't save ourselves. We need a savior. And so Paul supported this charge now by citing uh, the Old Testament in this uh, argument that he's making that the Jews can't be saved by the law. And he supports the human predicament with a, a string of, of Hebrew scriptures that he puts together uh, in kind of a uh, conglomeration, I guess, uh, an uh, amalgamation of these Hebrew scriptures that make up verses 10 to 18. Uh, so we'll read them and then notice where they're from uh, as we go and see uh, what Paul is talking about here. In verse 10, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. That's from Ecclesiastes 7. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Psalm 14 is where that comes from. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving from Psalm 5. The poison of asps is under their lips, Psalm 140, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Psalm 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known, Isaiah 59. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, if you, if you do a deep dive into these Old Testament passages and read them all, uh, what you find that they all have in common is that they stress the wickedness of mankind. And Paul intended to show them, because he's citing this string of Old Testament passages over and over again, that because of their inability to keep the law, every Jew should see themselves in the category of the wicked, not somehow seeing themselves as above God's judgment and among people who are saved because of their Jewishness. No, they're wicked because they don't keep the law. They were not righteous as they judged themselves to be. They were uh, wicked sinners under, uh, under God's condemnation, subject to his wrath and in desperate need of a savior. Now, if we look at these a little more closely, uh, we see that the root of, of sinfulness is ungodliness in verses uh, 10 and 11. Uh, what do we see there? There's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no, no one who seeks for God. So ungodliness is the root of the problem here. These verses are about man's spirituality, uh, his intellect and his emotions. He's, he's spiritually darkened. His intellect is clouded. He doesn't understand God. He's not even seeking after God, even though he may think that he is. 
uh, and he's not even trying to understand God. So an ungodly attitude is the first problem. And then verses 12 to 16 show that not only is his attitude bad, but his conduct is bad too. In verse 12, all have turned aside. So that's the whole body. Every, every part of our body has turned aside and away uh, from the Lord. But then on top of that, now he's going to talk about individual body parts, that they're all contaminated for, uh, and, and, and uh, affected by sin. Uh, the whole body turns, and then we see in verses uh, 13 and 14 that the, the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth, the feet, they all sin. Every part of us is tainted by this sin that uh, infects our body. And so as their mouth goes on sinning, they are not speaking the words of God. They're not talking the talk. And then their feet carry them, carry them away. And so they're not walking the walk. They're not talking the talk or walking the walk. And so they find themselves condemned by the Lord. And then verses 16 to 18 show that destruction and misery await them. They are not in God's good graces as they believe. And as a result of being under sin, this destruction awaits them and they will have no peace because they do not fear God. And so it's a stinging indictment. Uh, to be convicted by your own scriptures would certainly have cut them to the core. Uh, and so they have to understand now from their own scriptures that they can't hold any delusions that somehow they are uh, innocent, not guilty, and able to avoid God's wrath. They cannot escape God's judgment. And now, to sum everything up, uh, Paul is going to finish this uh, section, uh, this actually three-chapter section, uh, with uh, driving the nail home in verses 19 to 20. Uh, this is Paul's final pronouncement of God's judgment. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the Jews have the law of Moses, and they're obligated to obey it. And they were under the law. And that's a very heavy, significant phrase. They're under it. That means they're bound by it. They're obligated to it. Uh, and by violating it, uh, every single one of them had violated it. And Paul shows that they are guilty and under God's wrath. And to every Jew who might try to argue otherwise, uh, there is certainly one sin that they are guilty of, at least. And for those who don't believe, uh, the sin of not believing in Christ is a very big sin uh, that they needed to repent of. And so Paul said, every mouth is closed. And it's like a defendant who's uh, sitting in court and he's being accused of charges and he has no defense at all and his mouth has to be completely closed. Uh, like Job, when God thundered from the heavens, who is this? who darkens my counsel without knowledge. Uh, Job was rendered speechless. He had nothing to say in response to God's uh, charges. And so no Jew could defend himself by relying on the law and circumcision. Paul said that no one can be justified by the works of the law. So God gave the law so people would be aware of their sin and condemned by it and repent of it, not that they would be saved by it. And they needed to understand their need for grace. But it's not only the Jews who are condemned. Paul said uh, that all the world will be condemned and every mouth will be closed. And that includes the Gentiles too, because they were guilty of not obeying God who revealed himself to them uh, in nature and in conscience. So no one could escape judgment. Everyone, without exception, is under sin 
and under the wrath of God and deserving of God's wrath. And so by now, everyone, everyone is convicted. Everyone would get Paul's point. And we should too. We are all sinners. These verses should be equally as convicting to us as they are to the Jews and Gentiles that Paul was writing to. We are in a predicament that we cannot escape by our own power. No matter what we do, we are doomed. God does not lower his standards of perfection in any way uh, to accommodate our sin. And he will not accept uh, compromise. He will not accept our human compromises. And so we are at the bottom of the pit of human depravity. And if this was all we had, if we only had verses uh, 1-1 through 3-20, we would all leave here thoroughly depressed because we would know that they, we have no hope. We have no hope at all because we are convicted, we are guilty of our sin, and we are deserving of God's wrath. Now, I told you when I started the book of Romans that I love the book of Romans, but I have to be honest and say that these first three chapters uh, have been hard to preach because they're such a beating to me personally. Uh, and I imagine to you as we've gone through these first uh, couple months here, uh, this has been hard to have to reflect on our sin every single week, but we have to reflect on our sin if we are going to understand uh, the beauty of the gospel. It's against the, the black background uh, that we see the stars shine the brightest. Uh, a jeweler, when he's going to show you uh, that diamond that you're going to buy for your uh, fiance, uh, he puts it against a piece of black felt, right? Because that shows the brilliance of the diamond greater than just putting it against a white background. And so it's the same way with the gospel. It's only against this dark black drop, a backdrop of our sin that we're able to truly see uh, the glorious good news of the gospel. And speaking of good news, I cannot leave you here at verse 20. I'm not mean enough to do it. Uh, so I'm going to give you a preview of next week, and we're going to read verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And so that is the beginning of the good news of the gospel that we are going to hear next week. Uh, manifested just means that he's been shown or revealed to us. So brothers and sisters, it's not the law that saves. It's Jesus Christ who saves. And Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God who has been manifested, who appeared as a man, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for our sins so that we could be saved for every one of us who believes. And that is the gospel, and I just can't wait to get to it next week. So uh, we have to talk about uh, what we can learn from not only this passage, but really the first three chapters of Romans. This is what Paul has been trying to tell us. The problem is sin. We should be convicted today. We are responsible for our sin, and we are accountable to God. There are no extenuating circumstances. There is no rationalizing our sin. It's not anybody else's fault. We are not victims. We are guilty of sin. It's our sin. We have committed it, and we deserve judgment for it, and we have to own that fact. And once we own it, then we can recognize the good news. The good news is that the answer is Jesus. We will never find the answer to our sin problem in ourselves. It's not there. We are tainted by sin. We are wicked and we cannot save ourselves. We have a sin nature, and we'll, uh, be, we'll always be unable to shed that sin nature, and we'll never be able to satisfy the demands of a holy God. But thankfully, Jesus could. 
And because he came and because he died on the cross for our sins, we have hope that when we believe in him, we too will be able to escape the judgment that we deserve because he paid the penalty in our place as our substitute so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He takes away our sin and he looks at the beauty of his son, Jesus. And eternity awaits everyone who has placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for showing us the extent and the degree of our sins so that we would be fully convicted of it, Lord. And I pray that over these last two months, we have been fully convicted of our sin, Lord. And I pray that uh, as we turn the corner now and start to, to look at the beauty of the gospel over the next uh, few chapters, Lord, that we will uh, be so much more appreciative of it because we have understood our need for it at even a deeper level than maybe we have in the past. Lord, thank you for the conviction of sin, and greater than that, thank you for Jesus Christ and his cross and his death and his resurrection and for faith, Lord, because by these things and through these things and through your grace, Lord, we are saved. Lord, we trust you, we thank you, and we love you, and we just lift up your son, Jesus. We magnify his name today, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.